Hi, John. Hi, Pradeep. Good to see you. Good to see you. Shall we start with a gong? Sure. Just a moment of silence. This is just one minute of silence to kind of provide a nice open space for our beginning of our sharing together today. One of the most surprising and beautiful practices I found is this practice of taking even a brief minute. And I think in one of the teachings you mentioned, while it's very brief, it's better than not having any. Uh, and I found this to be very, very powerful. And uh, you know, I know we are on our dialogue around the environmental movement, but to kick off, I just thought if you can touch a little bit upon this idea of these little pockets of practice during the day. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be glad to. Uh, in my own training, I was trained initially very much in the classical, both uh, Zen Buddhist and Taoist uh, fashion with, in Zen with really long periods of silent meditation. And then in uh, Taoism with taking that stillness and space, spaciousness in, into an experience of moving uh, meditation. Both were extremely supportive and helpful. But from uh, the Tibetan tradition of Dzogchen, one of, the, one of the things I learned from my teachers, a wonderful teacher, his name was Dilgu Kensi Rinpoche, and he was put a great emphasis on the importance of having many moments of dropping into connection to your pure consciousness, your pure awareness. Just taking a moment to step back and, and stop all the other activity, all the distracted, mind activity and the distractions that we normally we fill our lives with. And just let go of that for a moment and drop into a, a deep connection with just the inner stillness and silence and space of pure consciousness, pure awareness. And then just remain there unified with that for a few moments. And to do that repeatedly throughout the day, maybe for just a matter of um, 
a minute or two. Do it at many different times throughout the day and into the evening so that these moments of stillness begin to, in space, begin to become part of your natural flow of life and it becomes much easier to access that inner uh, spaciousness of your true nature uh, under many different kinds of circumstances. And you might begin to find that where before things kind of pulled you away and turned, caused you to get caught up in anger or fear or jealousy or, or panic or all things that were sadness and grief we're dealing with today. Instead, because you've begun to do those daily rememberings of your true nature, it's much easier to do that even as you even before you begin to get caught up at the normal distractions. And so uh, it begins to heal that those habitual patterns of, of always going out into the outer world and trying to uh, deal with it in an extroverted fashion instead of following them back into consciousness itself and then allowing the state of pure awareness to be the field that is your true self and all these other emotional and mental activities are just displays of that inner truth. So these little moments help you to do that skillfully over time if you do it on a regular basis. Beautiful. And uh, in a way it's, it's often the, the two sides of working to cultivate, both yes. on the sides of cultivating the emptiness and then the side of cultivating the form and trying exactly. to be in the world and then dipping into the source and then coming out. Uh, yeah. When you say a few moments, um, do, you, do you also have a view on the, the depth, the quality that you touch? and the frequency that you touch and, and how we should think about it. Because, you know, you mentioned we deal with the world in a very extroverted manner. And mm -hmm. a lot of the, the sutric approaches and a lot of the teachings are focused on right action and right speech. And it's a very much form-focused view. And we try to do the right habit and then go into the source. But what you're suggesting is sort of dip into the source and then the right action emerges naturally. So we sit together in a moment of silence and then the dialogue emerges from it. So if you can just uh, perhaps just differentiate the two orientations a little bit, because sometimes people often come with the idea of uh, a top-down idea that has evolved over from a lot of the Christian tradition mm -hmm. and the idea of a, a God at the top. Could you maybe comment on that? Yeah, well, I think uh, you're absolutely correct that <clears throat> the, um, the dropping the pattern of uh, getting lost, as, as we were saying, in the extroverted activity and just developing a new kind of habitual pattern. I like to say, make habit your friend. And the habit, the new habit is, and I usually recommend people do this for a full moon cycle a month to establish a new pattern. Uh, and the pattern is that what we've just been doing have these brief moments of, of reconnecting to our true nature and just resting in open awareness. 
and not worrying about what arises in the field of that, be it an emotion or a thought or a perception. Just let it come and go and just remain with the inner stillness and space and silence and clarity. And um, if we can do that for brief moments, just a minute or two, or maybe even less than that, 30 seconds is also going to be very good. Um, what happens is you begin to establish a new pattern for yourself, which uh, then when you're embroiled in the midst of things that normally create a lot of contraction and uh, inner anguish and suffering, uh, because you establish that new pattern, you you it's easier for you just to drop back into that inner open spaciousness, which is free of of a lot of that suffering. And um, when you do that, of course, you enter into a field of pure awareness, which is really the mother and the father of all the creativity that is within. And uh, when we really connect with that aspect of ourselves, the response as a result is profoundly changed. And usually what arises is a response that's much more in harmony with the outer circumstances of the situation. And the responses lead to tribute to greater harmony, uh, tranquility, and uh, experience of greater balance and integration. And I think we've, we've, we probably all had this, this is part of our birthright, culturally even a long time ago, but it's been, been forgotten and pushed aside because our modern culture doesn't give us the chance to really develop this new habit pattern. And so we have these more of the patterns of, oh, I'm so busy. You know, we, when you say that to your friend, that's just what you're doing well. Oh, I'm so busy and I don't have time for X, Y, or Z. I've got so much to do. And that's kind of a signal that I'm a success. So it builds up the personal ego. And that's a new pattern that we kind of gravitate towards to give a signal that we're successful, whatever. And, um, but we don't have patterns to, in the middle of our daily flow of, of life, to repeated return to our essence, and then uh, let that be a pattern that stimulates a new kind of inner harmony and peace and tranquility in the midst of the daily flow of activity, which, of course, if you're only involved with that, can very quickly pull you away from that state of inner peace. Yeah, and you mentioned the word daily flow, and I really like that because it also links up with the principle that we have discussed, cultivating the union with the flow of the Tao uh, as part of the, the training. Yeah. And yep. in my experience, I have noticed that the ego structure is very helpful when the, the world around you is never going to change, you know? So if you're working in like a nine to five job at the post office and no technology is going to come in, uh, it's quite painful to live from that space when things are changing. And you have gone through a lot of changes of technological cycles in, in your lifetime and your personal journey itself has been very, very interesting. And prior to recording, we were talking about how a lot of the decisions and adventures that you have had seem quite difficult to plan ahead of time. Uh, so, you know, as we talk about your forays into the UN environmental movement and the Talberg Forum, um, just to set the backdrop, uh, 
could you speak about how you when you started your practice as a young man uh, you still look very young though i would say uh, when you started your practice as a young man started uh, using some of these or touching source and how that has sort of changed how you flowed and made decisions which led to this very unique life path yeah it's been a pretty wild and crazy life i was mentioning earlier that um on the one hand, I've had a wonderful background in science, and especially in science of ecology and biology. And uh, in a very early life, beginning with vision questing and meditation, starting from a very young age, and deep immersions in nature alone for extended periods of time. And then uh, spending a lot of my younger years, uh, from mid-teens on through my 20s, forming expeditions into different unexplored parts of the planet. So I had kind of the Indiana Jones period. And a lot of my friends have difficulty putting those, those three worlds together often. And then the political life as well, helping get the environmental movement going. So uh, <clears throat> in some ways it all comes together quite naturally because and I would say it began with the, the Beijing questing as a kid because when you do that and you go deeper, I think my initial um, immersions on, on my first quests at age seven and then thereafter at least once or up to three or four times a year, I would take a deep dive into connecting to nature and I got into the forests or the mountains. I did a lot of this in uh, New Hampshire in the White Mountains where my family had a home a farm, <clears throat> very simple farm, no electricity, no telephone, and so on. Um, so those periods of time gave me a very deep connection to nature, which actually I'm now sharing with others today what I learned from those periods of deep immersion because they were very healing. What they opened up for me was a realization that inherently joy life itself is an inherently joyful experience. Life itself, if you really just open to its natural state of being, it's one of joy and happiness, inner happiness. And, uh, and I realized when I would come back from those periodic immersions in that outer joy and I reconnect with family and friends and, and the broader culture, I was lucky to be in a family that actually was pretty, pretty joyful, pretty good. We had our ups and downs, of course, and we had a big band of kids or probably close to a dozen kids running around our farm and managing the farm together with parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. We all grew up together as a kind of a big tribe, big commune. My grandpa used to call it the family commune and or the family tribe. But uh, beyond that, I could see the outer world was going through a lot of suffering. There was a lot of pain. Of course, I was growing up during World War II so there was, I still remember the air raid sirens in uh, coming into New York Harbor and along the coast of New Jersey, where my folks had another home in, in northern New Jersey. And uh, so I was very aware of the war and uh, the suffering that that was causing. And, uh, <clears throat> and it, it seemed to be such a strong contrast with the basic joy and peace and happiness that I found in my 
periodic immersions in nature alone doing a quest. And then slowly, slowly I realized that maybe there was something there that could be helpful to many other people because I, I didn't see many other people doing what I was doing, which was on the one hand going into nature alone for extended periods of time. And then uh, secondly, uh, as I became aware of things like meditation and uh, Tai Chi and yoga, uh, learning those practices to support my, my, both my time, alone time in nature and also my life in general. So I began to put some of the things I'd learned that way, together with what I'd learned from uh, the, uh, the solitude in nature and offered it to teenage friends and family members. And so I began to have my own little, little gang that would go out with me and we'd do these things together. And finally I reached a point where I was able to take a I took a month-long retreat, went into the Olympic Mountains of Washington when I was about age 15 and did my first month-long solo, or all one time as we now call it, in the Olympic Mountains of Washington State. Wow, that was a huge wow. Everything completely transformed. It, it took the, the work I had done with repeated shorter immersions of uh, let's say three or four days up to a week. But by going in for a full month cycle, as I mentioned before, you, when you experience something with a full inner cycle, you go far deeper and you begin to embody things in a much more, in a much more complete way. So when I came out from that, uh, I began to share much more widely with my friends and associates. Uh, this kind of process is something that might be helpful to them. And later, as I got involved with helping get the environmental movement going, as I mentioned in our Latpad podcast, uh, I integrated this in to friends of mine who were getting, helping get the environmental movement going, but were suffering from the, how difficult it was and how little support there was back from, from the culture because it was a new thing. And so I used to offer this process to, to friends of mine that were really going through a hard time. Plus, it was very tough economically. There was no real strong cultural support to help the financial support for people going through this. Yeah, so, and I think you mentioned two things there, embodiment and opening. Those are the two words that really stood out to me. Uh, yeah. Maybe you can speak to a little bit about the context of you know, setting up that environmental movement, what was the kind of challenge, uh, perhaps, what were the kind of blockages that were being triggered uh, in the people trying to give birth to this, this new movement? Well, I think we all saw that, as I mentioned before, that we had mostly been treating the earth and with nature as a resource rather than as, as part of our family and a living system that we were one with. And of course, uh, the, a lot of the work was to really shift that view into one from taking from nature to partnering with nature, to becoming a collaborative, uh, mutually respectful, 
uh, relationship with all of life. And uh, now most indigenous peoples have this as part of their natural relationship to the earth and to nature because they have found this, this is the truth. This is the, a much deeper truth than this idea that we nature is just there to take from. So in a way, the environmental movement began to shift the old perspective of just a taker mentality, which I think may have its roots. I'm just speculating here. I, I think it might have had its roots in the colonial empires of Europe, especially because you remember the Roman Empire was spread throughout Europe and knocked out many of the earth-connected spiritual traditions that honored both nature connectivity and also honored the, the enlightened, liberated essence of each individual potentially. That was a threat to centralized power. So it was in the interest of the empire to knock out both uh, the liberated essence within, because then you could control people more easily, and then also to knock out nature connective activity because they wanted to have the control over who said you were connecting to to the spirit, uh, the spirit of God or, or the creator. They wanted to have control over who had the right, was behaving in the right way to have that connection. And it was in the service of building the colonial empire to have that kind of control, political and social control built into the spread of the empire. So out of that, this taker mentality got very extreme. And then it migrated over to the States with the arrival of the first colonists who brought those kinds of patterns of taking, taking, taking. And they met cultures that were built on harmony, respect, having a give and take relationship, uh, built on the whole idea of being a partner with the rest of life and also seeing the rest of life as equal, not being uh, biased against other species as somehow lesser or not as good as our species. So <clears throat> over time, the same patterns have built and we have schools of mining, schools of agriculture, schools of forestry, all of that's based on the taker mentality, not on a partnership and a, being a part of a family of life relationship. So the environmental movement planted the seeds of shifting that to becoming a responsible partner with the rest of life. It's a big deal. And of course, all those entities, uh, governmental, spiritual, and others that had grown up based on the taker mentality were very threatened by that. Obviously a very difficult thing to do, but some of the problems were so extreme, like the poisoning of the earth and the poisoning of the, of the human bodies and the bodies of many plants and animals and birds and so on. Things had gotten so bad and the pollution was so extreme. I remember in New Jersey, uh, the Passaic River, which was a river that I used to canoe on up in the headwaters in a place called the Great Swamp. But the downstream from that, as it flowed through places like Newark, where a lot of the uh, riots today are happening, <clears throat> that river was so polluted it caught on fire. That's how bad the pollution was. It was so filled with toxic chemicals that it literally caught on fire. Imagine what that was doing to the people who were drinking the water coming from that river. The air was so polluted in New York City that you would walk out in the morning and you'd look at the layers of pollution. Layer by layer was a deep orange, kind of orange, uh, orangey, reddish, uh, nasty looking thing hugging down at the sidewalk level. 
Then there was another layer that was above that that was a little bit less intense, more of a lighter orange. And then there was another level above that that was uh, a slightly lighter tint of pollution. But you could see these layers even walking down the street or when you got up into a building and looked at over the, over the city, you could see these layerings of pollution. Everybody was breathing that crap. Lives were shortened, people with asthma were suffering deeply, and it was probably shortening the lives of most people by decades, and leading to all kinds of cancers, and especially when you combine it with smoking tobacco. So uh, the facts of not being a, in a good, healthy partnership with nature were very clear because people's health were in steep decline, People were not happy with how they were living and how being surrounded by all this pollution. It was not a joyful life. And uh, so, although there were great obstacles culturally to shifting the patterns, the environmental movement managed to do that. And we established uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, we had passed the Environmental Policy Act, which I was very involved with helping to get going in the beginning. Uh, the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act, Endangered Species Act, a whole number of initiatives that then established a much more ethical foundation for a good relationship with nature and ourselves. Because this body, of course, is nature closest to us. And um, <clears throat> we were able to pass a lot of this legislation, which um, was great. And suddenly things began to get much better Believe it or not, we had the support of Richard Nixon for, for much of that, which was pretty amazing given his, his other problem areas, which we're all familiar with. But I um, have to give him credit for his work in China, opening up a better relationship, and his work to support the getting the environmental movement established, at least in terms of legislation. So um, because I was very much involved with many of those kinds of initiatives, I um, also realized I had a farm out in West Virginia where I would go to and make my own reconnections, do my own retreats and solo times in nature and meditation retreats in nature. And it took many of my friends out there, as I mentioned, to help them heal from the frustrations of what they were having to deal with in helping these cultural shifts and changes. And I realized as we began to get some success in passing these new laws and so on, I realized that this was a transitory phenomenon. And that uh, I noticed that many of my friends did not have, and the culture broadly did not have, a deep authentic connection to outer nature, to inner nature, their own world of emotions and, and uh, inner shadow aspects, much less their connection to their true nature, their source nature, this level of pure awareness that we've been talking about today in the beginning. So I realized that the environmental movement until it began to give people an experiential transformation where they realized that they were part of life. They were arising as part of a living system, a living web of life, and that we were not behaving responsibly to our family relationships. We were not acting as a real family member. And in that shift to seeing the rest of nature's family members could only happen if we develop deep love and appreciation and respect for the rest, rest of life. And the only way I knew to do that 
from the inside out was to give people the chance to go out into nature alone with some of these tools like meditation and tai chi and yoga as a way to deepen more quickly the connection process and so i began offering that as part of the overall process of uh, bringing about a culture that was more nature connected um, only a few people were on board with that idea for the most part i was considered kind of a weird guy for coming up with these these um, types of initiatives but i knew this was important in the long term because inevitably when new new uh, politicians come into into power uh, new people take over control of governance uh, those laws can easily be torn apart dismantled uh, the agencies that are created around those laws can be easily uh, downplayed or uh, depart or dismantled or shoved aside or, or ignored and all that good legislation can be useless if there's no strong cultural foundation of deep deep connection to nature itself so that's why i'm doing the work i'm doing today which is really to help provide a cultural foundation that is not attached to any particular religion or any particular political group it's a broad initiative to provide an experiential way of making deep connection to outer nature to inner nature and to your true nature and as you engage in that pathway it's natural for you to want to express uh, good legislation good laws and good uh, activities by our species in the way in which we we keep the water clean we keep the air pure and 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 uh, free and open we honor the rest of life we don't cause species to existence you know of life and we begin to see our life with a sense of equality and as partners in this amazing journey on this small marble floating in space so that's kind of a short nutshell of of my transition from mostly engaging in political process um, being a bit of a, um, a social activist and a, a policy maker largely to one of realizing that if we can have a true foundation of good relationship to the rest of life we had to build it into our governance systems our religions and our society and culture at large thank you thank you for sharing that john and i think many of those uh, ideas have a lot of resonance so we can see which once we explore uh, the first thing that came to me was the title of your book sky above earth below mm. uh, beautiful book and what came to me was how from the roman empire onto into europe we had this idea of power being focused in the skies in the top the god being someone at the top and then how that has then over time flowed into the religious structures the churches in the middle ages uh in that dark period of the european history and then through that into the government and so on and it seems like this element of connecting to nature is almost like the earth below and it's sort of more grounding and empowering 
one of the empowerments, right, in, in the teachings. So maybe you could comment on that because I think sure. I feel that power structures is something that is a very complex area where people often struggle with. And I have a sense that connecting to the earth is somehow linked to the power. I can't articulate it, but I felt it. Uh, so maybe you can speak to that. And also this idea of when we are facing opposition from a system, you know, we, we almost feel like we are pushing against a wall and the wall doesn't move because wall is deeply grounded, more grounded than we are. So with some of those ideas, it would be lovely to hear your thoughts on sure. this connection to the earth and the power. That sure. Well, uh, and I think uh, what we're talking talking about this issue, I mean, one of the things that's sweeping the planet right now, along with the the uh, the virus and the coronavirus nineteen COVID nineteen, has been this wave of realization that uh, racial injustice, and uh, especially political and police uh, uh, oppression of many other peoples is uh, is rampant. I think along with that goes probably we realized that our military activities have in many similar fashions. But if you take just one little step beyond that too, you begin to see that if you do not have a sense of all life being equal and, we're be and we being responsible members of a big family of all life, we're discriminating against all the other species on this planet. We're finally beginning to see a few sprouts in favor of the rights of nature, the rights of other forms of life, the rights of a river, the rights of a, of a mountain range, the rights of um, a clean air shed, and the rights of a, of a particular ecosystem to be as they have been for, for hundreds of thousands of years in most cases. We're not used to thinking about the rights of nature as being something inherent that we should be honoring just in the same way should we should be doing with each other and with different kinds of cultures and races on the planet. And so the next step is going to be, I believe, honoring the rights of nature in a much more profound way and the rights of ecosystems, the rights of rivers, the rights of airsheds, the rights of mountains, the rights of different kinds of living systems, which we are part of the, of the family of. We're part of the web of life to those places. So it's, that's a radical shift in, in our context, which we're in the midst of entering. We're only seeing the, the fringe of it. We're still mostly focusing on it through the lens of our own species and the misbehaviors that we've had with our own species. And that's a very good thing. That's the beginning. But we have to go much further. We have to establish a much more uh, deep sense of the fundamental equality of all living things and uh, work from that level. And, uh, and operate from that level. To do that is not just something that happens through a philosophical or mental process. My, the entire point of the way of nature is to provide an experiential process that's transformative and which introduces the possibility of our awakening to these truths from the inside out. And uh, that's the power of what we're up to, I think, in the way of nature. It's intercultural, it's not part of any particular culture. It borrows and, and learns from many great cultures, but it is in itself easy to adapt any culture, to integrate with any culture, and it honors all cultures as being uh, potentially providing gifts into the process. 
as far as the specifics go. So you can take many of these practices like we have in the Sky Above Earth book, and they can be applied in the context of your own culture, your own religion, your own background, and you make it your own in your own way. We deal with ceremonies in the same fashion. What is the common ground of spiritual practice and ceremonial practice that you find in culture after culture around the world? What are, the, what are some of the common ground of those cultures? And how, do, how can we provide those in a way that is, is, is unbranded as far as the ownership of a particular culture or people? So that any people, any individual can take it and make it their own, explore it to see if it's their truth and apply it to their own context or their own situation and their own culture. When you do that, you begin to see two things happen. One is you begin to have a pathway that is truly interfaith, intercultural. You begin to see that all peoples basically in all these pathways are pathways that very often are pathways in common with what you're following. If you have a particular pathway and you see the common ground in that pathway, it's much easier to honor and respect other pathways because you can see the common ground, you've explored what you have in common, and you see the common good. So that's powerful stuff. If you're not involved in a particular path through your own culture and religion, then this process, because it's inter intercultural, provides a common ground approach to cultivation of the inner and the outer and to nature connection, uh, which in a sense, allows you to follow the pathway based on the common ground of all the, all the great cultures without having to identify with one particular one. So there's two th good things that happen. If you're part of a major lineage like Christianity or, or Islam or Buddhism or Taoism or something of that sort, you can honor the other faiths, the other cultures, without having to fight them about who's got the best one because you're seeing the common ground aspect of your own culture. The other possibility that's really beneficial is that if you are not one that wants to follow an, an older path, older cultural pathway, you want to find a contemporary um, pathway based on the universal truths of many of the world's great cultures, then here's a pathway that provides that. And um, <clears throat> so I, I see the process of the training that we do in the way of nature's providing those two gifts. The third big is that it provides a deeply nature-connected pathway into spiritual truth. It provides a profound pathway to connecting to the rest of life in outer nature and having the experience of the five elements of earth, air, fire, water, and space, or in the Chinese system, wood, fire, earth, um, metal or stone and water. It provides a, uh, a pathway that allows you to connect deeply with the rest of nature through an understanding of the elements and through an understanding of life and, and giving you the experience of a personal connection with it. And <clears throat> that deeply nature connective experience then naturally begins to support an ecologically aware kind of society and culture from the inside out. And then your governance systems, your politics, all the rest naturally begins to express that inner 
connection, love, and appreciation and respect. So um, uh, I'm not sure that answered your initial question exactly. Yeah, but, uh, no, that was that was very helpful. And what comes to me is you mentioned intercultural, but in some way I feel like this is almost a pre-cultural or even like a non-cultural process because it's almost as if there are these deeper truths and we formulate lineages around them and yeah. thoughts around them. And when you talk about the common ground approach, you sort of are looking at those deeper truths from different points of views and what ends up coming is perhaps not as intercultural but as something which is almost like the Tao that cannot be told right yeah. it's, it's, it's almost that essence of it because it doesn't require a language a people a country all you're talking about is connecting to the earth and if you tell people you can connect to the earth and to your own body uh, we don't really need a top-down authority to give any no. form of threat. Uh, Which is why it's threatening to authorities. Exactly. Um, but I should say too that um, it's really important to emphasize that if you take a principle, like uh, we're right now in some of the teachings that I'm providing online that I think you're part of, one of the recent ones that we began to share was the, the principle of the natural opening of the heart. And then its companion principle, once you make a deep connection to the opening of the heart, the natural radiance of compassion activity that tends to arise once the heart is truly open. So if you look into most of the cultures of the planet, be it Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, for example, you'll find a way that that principle of opening of the heart, it love, deep love and, and, uh, and joy, and the natural to express compassion activity to help those that are suffering. Those two principles are found in virtually every one of the great spiritual traditions of the planet and cultures. So when you follow one pathway, but you also at the same time, you're following the forms of that path, be it Christianity or Islam, Buddhism, for example, you can honor that path very deeply in your own cultural tradition, but you're also seeing that that pathway exists here and here and here in these other cultures too. And you begin to develop respect and honoring and appreciation of those other cultures, even though you may not be on that particular pathway. What that does is lead to much less warfare, much less talk about who's got the greatest religion on the planet or the greatest culture. This is extremely important as a process. And then for those who do not want to express themselves to an, an ancient or a more ultra, older cultural pattern, they have the opportunity to work directly with the core principle itself, which we provide through the way of nature. So I wanted to mention that there's this effect of developing much more respect and, and, and respect and appreciation and uh, tolerance, basically, between cultures when you follow this kind of pattern because you learn what is the common ground and that leads you still follow your path but you really respect other peoples and other cultures and other pathways yeah. from a foundational level yeah beautiful 
it almost feels like those different paths are forms of expression of that principle. And so once we express and touch the principle, it's almost like comparing the different clothes you wear, right? Yep. Because at the end of the day, there's no need to to get angry with someone for wearing red and saying, hey, I'm wearing yellow and yellow is better than red. Right. Uh, it's, it's sort of silly. I feel like it almost <laughs> drops naturally. <laughs> Got a great T-shirt on today. <laughs> uh, I've, got some, I've got some matching color here. Oh, brilliant! Um, more of a Native American color style. of fire. Yeah, uh, beautiful. Okay, um, so yeah, so that's that's helpful because I feel like that leads me to our next question, which is around legislations and you know trying to get these legislations formulated during the UN process that you spoke of, mm -hmm. birthing the environmental movement. And you touched upon something very important that the politics will change, the legislators will change, and the legislation themselves will be scrapped off or the new legislations will come. And so it's really important to work at the level of source and then let things unfold inside out. And once we have had that direct connection and the people who are formulating these legislations have had the nature connection and things would just follow naturally. Yeah, and uh, the culture itself that uh, votes into office, the legislators, for example, the cultures themselves have had this kind of experience. In most cultures, you have a rites of passage process. I would love to have a, a podcast sometime with you about the rites of passage as a, as a process for young people. Almost every culture has, has a rites of passage process young people have. And so they, they get a start on life with a deep, deep immersion with being connected to the rest of living things. And that ecological awareness then permeates everything else that they have in their culture. And even their groups, their associations, if you look into Native American culture, there are many different associations within the cultures, which almost always have the names of plants and animals and elements. It's because of that deep relationship. So obviously they're going to have a profound environmental and ecological relationship in their ethical and, uh, and uh, behavioral patterns of how they grow plants, how they get food, how they develop their economies and so on and so forth. They all reflect that deep family type connection. But you must start with that experiential foundation and the rites of passage process, which, which is the vision quest. Uh, one of the, it's one of the main rites of passage processes in most indigenous cultures. One of the things that we're trying to do with the way of nature is to reintroduce the vision quest process as a foundational uh, type of activity so that everyone has the experience of this deep connectivity. And with that, then you elect legislators, you elect officials that arise out of that context. And of course, they're going to reflect that when they enter governance. Yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> too many. Uh, I can see how this is such a challenging process uh, and how much work everyone has to do from inside out uh, to have this happen. Uh, so yeah, so maybe we can fast forward a little bit into your journey from the UN 
initiative towards the Talberg Forum, and maybe you can sure. give us a, an overview of that. Yeah, I think in our last podcast, I, I shared quite a bit about how some of these early things led to um, supporting the branding of the term environment because it didn't have a resource taker mentality type of bias. It's a whole system type of awareness. So building on that, by the time uh, the late 60s and early 70s arrived, in my own case, I had finished a project to, as I think I mentioned before, do 200 case studies of how human activity and development projects were leading to massive disequilibriums ecologically all over the planet. And so we pulled all these together into a massive volume called the Killless Technology, Ecology and International Development. And with my friend Tagi Farbar, or I should say Mohammed Tagi Farbar, we took this book, we, we produced the book out of a number of case studies, which we, we uh, assigned to different scientists from all over the planet, through many cultures, and they, these case studies reflected what was actually happening to the earth and to nature all over the planet. And by this time, a lot of support had built to hold a gathering in uh, Stockholm to hold the first United Nations Conference on the Human Environment, where we could start to take some steps again to create uh, international governance systems that would support the protection of nature and start beginning to heal this imbalanced relationship we humans have. So the case studies initiative brought together, after doing the research, these 50 or so scientists that presented the case studies of human impacts on the rest of life at a big gathering in, in Virginia, just outside of DC, back in 68, after we'd done the, the research work, and presented it to the, to the world, really. And the, it sent shockwaves out into the development community because they had no idea what they were doing, what their projects were doing. There's no history of doing uh, post audits of what had actually happened after they did a project. They wouldn't go back and take a look at those projects and see what social and economic and ecological kinds of impacts were created. And here we just provided that, that uh, huge uh, avalanche of impacts all of a sudden. So it sent chakways into the development community. Um, <clears throat> then we took that work and handed it over to the Ewing uh, Conference folks as part of the evidence for what was happening to the planet because of human behavior with a lack, with a lack of a whole system type of, of activity or awareness. And uh, so we basically provided a nice chunk of evidence for man's role in having a major negative effect on the global environment. That gathering in 1972 led to the creation of the, the, the United Nations Environment Program. It also, um, the creation of MUNAP and that conference fostered a global movement that something had to be done at the legislative level of each in each country. So many equivalent to what we set up in the United States, which is called the Council, the um, Environmental Policy Act, and out of that came the EPA, and also the Council on Environmental 
quality, which reported directly to the administration as a policy, uh, part of the policy governance system. So many other countries then took that same type of idea and began to create entities within their own, their own political system to take a look at what were the impacts on their own, their, their own nation's environment. Uh, how could they predict impacts of things that were about to take place? How could they prevent these negative impacts from arising through these studies before they did a project? And how could they take, learn from some of the negative impacts from the past? So all that began to unwind into many places around the planet as a result of both the case study type of work and the creation of UNEP and the UN initiative, which basically gave a, a, a global seal of approval to the environment as a major international issue. And that was the first time that happened. That was in 1972. So um, <clears throat> many of us then began to work internationally at that point to try to help support the growth of the process, that environmental movement around the planet. And uh, uh, no need for me to go into all the details, but a lot of my own work was involved for some years in that, helping support that the growth of that kind of environmental uh, consciousness. Uh, you mentioned that a lot of the times people go into systems and they play with the systems and the thing they're doing development to them but often what they end up doing is damage yep. to them. Uh, a lot of the times we see this happening to human beings when in education they are being conditioned to follow particular modalities and not really listen to their own heart and their own process. We see this when a lot of the Western development organizations go into indigenous populations or in Africa and try to do development projects and they have second and third order consequences which are catastrophic. It seems like there needs to be a, 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 a depth of inner work before one can even have the idea that one has to play with a complex system. Could you speak to that? I know you have done a lot of collaboration with a lot of systems theory as well, and how that sort of emerges from a lot of this inner work and the elements of being receptive to what's happening in the system. Yeah, I think there are two uh, entities that have risen recently out of this kind of whole system awareness that we were to really uh, promote strongly in the, in the early 70s and late 60s, um, and around which the term environment really branded that kind of consciousness in the beginning. Now, then you, be, you begin to have the use the word sustainability and then later on you we now have the word regenerative economies but they're all talking about something very similar which is basically a whole system uh, approach to how we relate to the rest of of the planet and local local and 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 um, broader global systems <clears throat> And of course, a global good example of a global system is climate change, which is one of the types of impacts. Another example would be 
the loss, the, the massive uh, extinction, the loss of biodiversity on a planetary scale that's like a geologic event impact. And, and of course, at the local level, learning how to come into harmony and balance with local systems in a way that shows we're a responsible member of our local ecosystem. And um, <clears throat> so, having said that, um, one of the groups that arose more recently, which has been doing some great work, is a group called, for, called the, Center, the Center for Systems Awareness. Uh, a very recent one, and then a precursor to that, before that, with the help of people like Peter, Peter Senge, actually, and, and some other leaders in, uh, in the field. Uh, was a, another uh, uh, center for uh, systems uh, analysis and uh, uh, kind of a, a it provided a capacity to bring whole systems uh, analysis and uh, examination. How do you understand a whole system? How do you comprehend a whole system? And um, the, these two centers for systems process have led to quite a, quite a strong shift in the leadership community around how to approach uh, developing leaders that have a systems concept or a systems comprehension. In the case of both of these centers for systems work, um, the one for systems change, the other one for systems awareness. Uh, we, the way of nature has been very much involved in helping with the, with providing the experiential foundation of how you experience the whole system. And we use the wave nature process of going into solitude, providing some very powerful tools for connection in the beginning, and then having a sharing process afterwards about how, the, how deep the connection went, what were some of the issues that arose, how can you go deeper with your connection so you have a more comprehensive understanding of the whole system, and so on and so forth. So that these two centers have at the very outset of their cohorts, a process of going deep into how to experience all the system from the inside out. And of course that then supports all the, uh, the rational uh, systems work that, that comes later. And it's proven to be a, a really wonderful way to support both the experiential and the rational uh, scientific cultivation side because the two fit together like a hand, like two hands together, or a hand in a glove. And uh, I wanted to honor those two uh, centers for what they've been doing. Both were inspired in large part by the work of Peter Senge, who many know as a leader in the field of leadership development. And uh, Peter has had the vision to include this type of um, deep uh, cultivation at the very outset of uh, the development of the scientific perspectives on how you understand whole systems. So, um, but we also need to provide that kind of education at, at a broader cultural level beyond the leadership organizations and the scientific entities that are beginning to understand how the systems work. So it needs to be a part of a cultural widespread cultural experiential 
uh, spread as well. A good example of um, how that systems awareness has been growing lately. Uh, some years after the UN conference in, in Stockholm, there was another major uh, process uh, begun in Sweden called the Tauberg Forums. You've probably heard of Davos, the Davos gathering on the, the World Economic uh, Forum on World Economic Activity and uh, bringing together economic leaders. Uh, an issue to help, to help coordinate and bring awareness to major initiatives that can support a healthy global economy and, and regional economies. Tabuk Forum was conceptualized as something very similar to that, but focused instead of just on economy, focused on sustainability and having a healthy environment. So many of the early uh, mothers and fathers of the climate change crisis, for example, came to Talberg in the early days of people becoming aware of climate change as a major issue, or I should say climate catastrophe. And uh, so the Talberg Forum became a place where many leaders who began to be concerned about things like the environment, uh, sustainability or ecological sustainability will be more correct or how do you develop a regenerative economy that's living in harmony with the rest of life um, these kinds of folks would gather at the topic forum they were often anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people uh, a man named Bowen was one of the main leaders of that movement um, <clears throat> I, at that time, was beginning to work in Sweden by beginning to do some, some way of nature work in Sweden with a good friend of mine, Jorn Gendi, who's also become involved with many of, came over to do a passage in Baja California with me some years ago. And we developed a strong friendship and connection through that. And then we began to brainstorm how we could bring this process into Talberg. And Jorn had been doing some groundbreaking work and how to bring that that kind of the kind of work that the way of nature does into the Talberg Forum. So we began to team up together to uh, work to bring a very brief, compared to say a sacred passage or even a nature quest, but bring a very brief process that didn't involve 12 days or six or seven or eight days, but could be done in one day or part of one day even, or maybe one night, one overnight. We'd had some programs where we provided an overnight for those that could do an overnight. But it was provided to the entire conference of 500 to, I think, the largest gathering was 2,000 people. And we learned how to train leaders in the process. So we, I remember Jorn pulled together a wonderful group of, of called Pathfinders. These Pathfinders were trained in the connection process, how you do a deep connection to nature and to the essence of yourself and to outer nature. And you go out with some of those simple tools for a short period of time. It might only be a matter of four hours or maybe an afternoon or morning. And then you, may, you go through the connection process in the solitude, in the silence, the space of a wild and natural piece of nature in your, in your area. Now to do this for 2,000 people, as you can imagine, 
could be quite a bit, quite a challenge. Talberg is seen having a, an amazing array of beautiful environments, many of them quite natural, and have a, a beautiful feeling of of nature and wildness, even though they're pretty close into the little village of Talberg, most of them. So we we basically um, train these people in the path and call them pathfinders. It often took up to four months to train them properly to take on this work. And then when the form of the, those individuals became the leaders that took smaller groups from the Talberg form itself, it was part of the overall structure of the form, but the individual groups had maybe anywhere from 20 to 40 people in them. And they were trained and guided by the, these pathfinders and they would radiated out and scattered out from the place where the form itself was held into the forests. And uh, there's a beautiful lake there uh, next to Talberg, which was formed by a gigantic meteorite that hit the center of Sweden many, many years ago. It's quite a powerful spot. <laughs> so Amazing. <laughs> so what's left of the meteor is this beautiful lake. And we often take people out along the shores of that lake or in a few cases out onto an island in the lake as well. So in some cases it was a matter of just, uh, it was it could be a full day, it could be a half a day, or in a few cases some people went out for an overnight, a brief overnight to go a bit deeper with the process. When then after, the, after that was done, we all came back together again to share and explore how it went and how to go deeper the process so that when they went back home they could take what they had been given and, and explore deeper and deeper and deeper this connection this experiential connection to the rest of life and um, what we discovered and this was a big uh, opening for me personally because I had thought that it would take at least a week for people to go deep enough to have an authentic experiential transformation in their relationship to nature what I discovered was that if the tools were good, the meditative and perceptual tools that we provided, Yorna provided to these people, if they were good enough, and I think they were pretty good. Yorna had a strong background with nature, and I, of course, have been working most of my life in that field. So we gave them the best that we could, and uh, it seemed to work because they would take those tools, and because they were in solitude, there, was not, there were no other people around to distract them from being deeply connected to the forest, to the lake, to the beauty of nature, whatever birds or animals arrived on the scene. And um, so they had the, the beautiful gift of taking this deep, deep dive into a connection with the rest of life. Not as an idea, but as an experience. And then they came out from that. As I said before this, we've come to call this the way of nature you process because in the beginning you get some training and you do some exploration of an idea mentally and maybe test that experientially. And then you take the deep dive into the solitude, the stillness, the silence and the space of connection to the three natures, outer nature, inner nature and true nature. And you stay there for a period of time. In the case of the forum, as I said, we. It was relatively brief, but still very powerful. And then they would come out from that process and then we would um, host a bit of a sharing together to see how things went and maybe help with 
with uh, in understanding what happened and then uh, provided a process of how you continue going deeper and deeper and deeper. Now imagine taking a couple of thousand folks through that process as part of a forum that's focused on sustainability as the key issue and environmental health for the planet. A Davos for the earth, a Davos for sustainability. Extremely powerful. And the folks at Talberg had the vision and the creativity to bring that in at the very as an essential key part of their process. And what we all learned from that is that actually quite large numbers of people can go through a powerful transformation, even up to thousands of people at a single time. And in this case, it's part of a broader forum. Of course, most of the forum was focused on uh, taking a look at the uh, <clears throat> rational examination of the systems that were under, under threat, how climate change was posing a major uh, issue for the earth. And of course, looking at the some of the uh, the global climate change issues, which uh, Al Gore at that time was one of the leaders, for example, uh, and who presented at the forum around that kind of issue. So <clears throat> uh, there's a beautiful integration of both the experiential and the rational exploration. And the forum is not as active these days as it was during that, that peak period. I guess it would be, I'd have to go back at my notes and give you a correct timing of when the forum was in its heyday, but it was fairly recent and still continues. The Talberg Forum is continuing a lot of the work of the Talberg Forum, and I'm actually having a, a um, we're sorting something in the way of nature called uh, Nature Side Chats where we're getting together with certain leaders in uh, fields related to, to our process. And one of the, fir the first one we're gonna do is with Jorn Genby uh, next week. It's gonna be a nature side chat that is podcasted and, uh, and made available. And then uh, with uh, the current head of the Talbert Foundation and Jorn and myself, um, we're getting together to do another chat, which is happening I also, I believe, next week to kind of take a look at what we accomplished in the past and then take a look at the implications for that for the future. And they're also using an old um, video I produced in 1990 of what I projected was gonna to happen to the environment if we did not take correct action. And now many of those predictions have come true and taken place. So you. Um, Alexander Crawford is the the other the head of the foundation that is going to be participating in the with the as part of the three people that that share together around this, and it'll be kind of a chance to take a look at where we were, what the predictions were ecologically, and then what actually happened, and then the other aspect is going to look at the at the um, uh, process that we was initiated at Tober provide up to thousands of people with the experience of deep nature connection. And um, I'm excited about both of those uh, upcoming uh, yeah. experiences together. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I look forward to that as well. I, I, I believe we've sort of come a full circle in a way because we started by talking about how even a minute of silence yeah. is powerful. And, and you've spoken about how the entire process even over a single night can be super powerful. Yep. Uh, 
So with that, pardon? I think too for you too, because your your first immersion was in a contemporary version of what we learned at Talberg, which we now call the Renewal Program. And the Renewal Program is a one-day program, which can be uh, can be done, it can be done in one or two days. Some of them are overnight, but mostly they're just during the day. I think you were part of a renewal program in Tuscany, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, and and more and more my, at least my personal experience is guiding me to say that length is helpful, but it's the, the depth and the quality that makes a much bigger difference. Like there are moments when I spend six hours in nature and then there are moments when I spend an hour, but I have just have a deep connection with say a, yeah. a flower or a plant and yeah, I can feel the impact time. of it. Uh, yeah, normal time is not really relevant. Yeah, it almost feels like uh, there's a sense of uh, time dropping away. Yes. The field of time doesn't seem to be present. In fact, sometimes you also feel like yeah, it's, it's almost like you drop into a different, uh, higher definition of reality. <laughs> well, actually, that's uh, you really hit on something there because my own experience is that when you really drop into a profound connection to source, as you even approach that, the experience of time begins to change and shift. And actually, when you're in a deep connection to true nature, a deep recognition, Time itself doesn't seem to exist in the way that we normally experience it at all. In fact, it's often experienced as a kind of a timeless state. You might return to a more conventional mind and go, oh my God, what happened to that half hour? That hour when you take a look at the, at the watch and you go, oh my gosh, it seems like it was just a few minutes and it was, a, it was almost an hour. What happened? Well, you were in deep, 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 deep connection to your essence. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very powerful in a way. Uh, I feel like the quality of awareness in those depths is probably a quality that can help when we face such big complexity and challenges. It just feels like the surface mind with all its chatter, it's just not equipped to deal with that complexity. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thanks for this overview, John, and, and for sharing the story. Uh, I guess uh, I have a final question around when you go through your own journey, do you sort of have a narrative around it or all this sort of emerges when you look back on, mm. on time? How do you reflect on this element of time in your own journey? Hmm. Well, I'm not sure we have enough time to fully share that. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect answer to that one. <laughs> or we have all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I should say, maybe the, our wonderful podcast listeners may not have enough time to bear with me, but <laughs> um, I think one thing I would like to kind of, because I guess we need to finish up here shortly. Um, <clears throat> one thing I would like to share is that the uh, what excites me right now is that the planet is going through so many transformations in terms of racial behavior, 
honoring all the different varieties of peoples on the planet, uh, trying to eliminate some of the shadow aspects that have expressed themselves in things like police behavior and abusive behavior along those lines. And then of course, this immense impact economic and um, physical from the, uh, from the coronavirus 19. So, and the sequestration that most of us have been going through. And I think we've spoken a few times at some of the podcasts how this provides a potential gigantic opportunity for personal internal cultivation and transformation because we have the time. We have a little more time for personal retreat. And I think I've underscored the fact that it's actually quite healthy to go out in nature, especially if you're alone or in a small group if you're masked. And if you're out alone in nature, then you're, you're, you're utilizing the power of solitude in nature as an opportunity to deep authentic connection to a tree or a flower or a stream or something that's natural in your neighborhood, even if you're in the city. This is a huge opportunity for that. And if you're lucky enough to live in a place like I do, you, you walk out and the mountains are right there, or for many the ocean might be right there, or a beautiful lake. Um, <clears throat> so I think that uh, what I see is that if people started engaging in, the, in this process more and more of making a deep connection in their in this invitation from the times to begin to open up a new kind of connection to, the, to nature and the rest of life. Something really extraordinary could arise creatively from that connection. And what arises in, in you as an individual could be profoundly healing to your own life, to your own economic and spiritual issues and questions, to your own health and well-being, the creativity that arises as you begin to approach deeper and deeper connection to the rest of nature, of which you're part, can have a profound effect on bringing a level of balance and joy and happiness and celebration back into your experience of this lifetime. I meet so many people that feel they've lost that, but this is a pathway that directly provides an opening back into that at all kinds of levels, physical, energetic, emotional, and spiritual. And I'd say the main thing is to accept the invitation that the times have given us, honor that invitation, and take the dive into a connection, into deeper connectivity to outer nature, inner nature, and your true nature. Beautiful. Thank you, John, for your time. And uh, sure. to the listeners, hope you're listening to this in nature. <laughs> if yes. not, we highly recommend pairing these podcasts with your walk in nature, <laughs> if you can. And they can take, I think we've mentioned a couple of books before, but you can use the Sky Above Earth Below book as a bit of an introductory sharing. It's on Kindle too, so you can get it in digital format. And then the most recent book on cultivating uh, natural liberation, which I think I have the cover for you here someplace. This is, uh, this is the cover of that book. Yeah, Cultivating Natural Liberation, Teachings on Reconnecting with the Three Natures, Volume 1. When is the next volume coming, John? 
Well, I'm working on it actually. It's volume one. But this one is volume one. Yeah, but, when is volume two coming? I'm very intrigued now. Yeah, I'm working on it. And uh, it's, right now it's only available through Amazon Germany, amazon.de. But if you go to the website at wayofnature.com, you can get a direct link to the to the websites for both Perfect. books. And, um, and, uh, you can also find some of the interviews and videos on Way of Nature's Vimeo channel, and uh, we'll yep. add the link to it as well. Yep, and soon YouTube. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. Yeah, good to see you, Pradeep. You look great. You look healthy. You must be spending some time out in nature. <laughs> I did spend six hours today in nature. <laughs> you have a nice glow. I can see it. All right. Brilliant. Thanks, John. See you.